Um, so, Miss Ratledge, to begin this week, uh, first of all, I should say, hello, Miss Ratledge. Hello, Mr. Linden. Good to see you. But, uh, but perhaps the reason why I, I did not begin with such a cordial salutation is that I have a bone to pick with you, okay. um, which is that you, you, we have differing opinions on the, the funniest name of a U.S. political party that is no longer extant. Um, would you care to uh, defend your your choice? Would you like to hear what my choice is first? No, just straight up. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. What is your choice? Okay, my choice is the Know Nothing Party. <laughs> okay, um, some unexpected ASMR from Miss Ratledge. <laughs> some the, some AS the MR in ASMR stands for Miss Ratledge. Um, so could you hear um, me, Mr. Linden? I I could hear you. You could um, okay. Okay. And uh, and my choice is not going to be whispered because the only way that you can say the Bull Moose Party um, is in a very gruff, deep voice. Um, so uh, you know, of course, the Bull Moose Party, headed by Teddy Roosevelt, the world's most famous moose, um, uh, after perhaps Bullwinkle, um, was uh, was the uh, the Progressive Party, right, in the the nineteen twelve election, and I just. I love the idea that uh, you know social reform and and progressive politics are somehow associated with the the powerful and lumbering moose. So who were the no no nothing? Oh, don't say real it quick. so loudly. Sorry. <laughs> this is, uh, hey 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 fam, uh. welcome to our YouTube channel, um, and uh, this is the uh. the no nothing party. Hit that. Like and subscribe. Uh, register as a know nothing. It uh, is. It is. It. They are the party of I know nothing. Okay. Excuse me, Mr. Linden. What are you saying? Okay. I know okay. nothing. Um, no, they're actually. Um, I love. I just love that name because it's so ridiculous that there was a party called the Know Nothing Party. Yeah. Um, though, uh, don't don't be confused by their um, goofy name by their tactics because they were one of our more um, I would say one of our more vile parties. Um, they're the first nativist party, actually. They they started okay. in the the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s, um, and they were really anti-Catholic and anti essentially anyone that was not Protestant and white. Um, and so they had a secret society, and that's why they were called the Know Nothings. They're actually mm. originally called the Order of the Star Spangled Banner. But because of all their secret codes and things like that, they, they were they were dubbed the Know Nothings because they would say, "I know nothing of what you're talking about." Um, so just to be clear, you do not you do not uh, agree with the stances, just the fun name. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you asked me so, a question about the fun names, which, by the way, okay. I went to. I just out of curiosity looked at Wikipedia this morning when we were talking about this. And um, there's some other great names. Like, there, first of all, there's a ton of parties that are listed as kind of local parties. Um, but one that really struck me is the Pirate Party, which I thought was pretty great. Um, obviously, it's about I love I love the themed party. <laughs> pirate Party. I thought my three and five year old might want to join. Um, there's also a party called the Rent is Too Damn High. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We, I know this guy. He has an amazing facial hair. Um, yeah. The guy who was in charge, yeah. Yeah, they're a New York City par uh, party, but I thought they might, they could probably um, get some some groupies in the Bay Area. Um, 
but yeah, there's endless amounts of parties, just despite the fact that we typically think of America as just uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, and so that's, that's, thank you for that lovely segue. That's what we're talking about today. So welcome to Historically Speaking, where we explore the history behind the topics in this week's news. Um, and this week is all about parties um, of the political variety. Who knows, we might even talk about other kinds of parties. Ms. Rutledge, why don't you give us a, a little bit of, you know, an, an intro of what we're talking about when we're talking about political parties? What, what's their, their history look like, at least in the U.S. here? Yeah, well, uh, just the, I mean, there's a, a couple different phases of parties in the U.S., but just to start, um, James Madison famously talked about parties in, what, in which he called them factions um, in one of his early Federalist papers in supporting the Constitution, Federalist 10, um, in which essentially he said, you know, factions are going to happen in the United States or they're going to happen in any democracy. In fact, qu to quote him, liberty is to faction what air is to fire, right? An ailment without which it will instantly expire. In other words, you can't really deny people from dividing into different kind of tracks of interests. Um, but they, they, they deliberately organized the government to the best extent possible that it would not allow them to flourish. Now, James Madison was right about many things um, and pretty brilliant, I would say. But um, on this, I think I would disagree with him, right? We have, we obviously have a country that has organized itself around factions around political parties. And that happens really quickly. In fact, within the first presidency with um, under George Washington, the, the cabinet almost instantly splinters, despite the fact that Washington is really our only president that was he not really he is the only president that was unanimously elected, um, overwhelmingly elected his party, his cabinet splits into what is called the Federalists, who believed in a larger more central government with kind of a looser interpretation of the Constitution, um, namely with Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and then uh, the Anti-Federalists, which later become the Democratic Republicans um, under Thomas Jefferson, who believe in a smaller government, more agrarian um, and decentralized, so not with a strong federal government. Yeah, and and we see an evolution of political parties as we as we go along in in American history. You know, we've got when Jacksonian democracy kicks in with Andrew Jackson. We have the Whig Party, who uh, are sort of our anti-Jackson faction, um, and uh, of course uh, after that you get a number of different parties right around the the Civil War, but the most important one being the Republican Party, right? Uh, becoming a significant factor. But a lot of people sort of get confused that uh, the Democrats back then and the Republicans back then don't really match up to the modern ideas very well. Um, and that's a question that we get a lot. Um, so uh, we were talking a little bit before this, and, and if you want to walk us through this, how they sort of flip identities in some ways. Um, not entirely, but over the 20th century, the Democrats and Republicans come to represent pretty different things. Is that right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say of all the questions that I get from students, this is one of the top mm -hmm. um, in my U.S. history and Gov classes. But um, yeah, you know, the Democrats, they are the party of they're the party of Jefferson and the party of then of Jackson and in that they are agrarian. They believe in states' rights, decentralized government, um, limited government, in other words, um, you know, really that the government should not do anything more than is explicitly stated within the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, they, because of their concern with states' rights, they also tend to side with slaveholders. In other words, they, they're not really that interested in getting rid of slave, slavery because that is an individual decision and an individual state decision. And um, so though I wouldn't say that the Democrats necessarily represent slavery at that time, they, uh, they don't oppose it mm -hmm. in any um, stretch of the imagination. Um, and so the Democrats really are, you know, the oldest party. Um, and they, they basically stay that way um, for a, a period of time, um, well, let me backtrack for a second. The Republicans, they, they are um, founded under Abraham Lincoln right before the Civil War. And really their specific purpose is, um, is to kind of take some of these groups of individuals, namely the, the former Whigs and the Free Soilers and some people from the Know Nothing mm -hmm. Party, right? And they all kind of meld into this one party that are anti, is anti-slavery um, or anti the expansion of slavery, I should say. But the, the Republicans early on, they do some pretty major expansion of government, like the Homestead Act, um, which is when the American yeah. government gave land away to Americans. Um, they establish a national transportation system by building a bunch of railroads. Um, they... And those two are connected, right? The, the Homestead Act and the railroads, because they, they sell a lot of lands along the railroads to support that system. And, you know, just, of course, the, the obligatory mention that a lot of this land that they're giving out had pretty recently been taken from Native American peoples, but uh, just... No, 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 absolutely. Excellent point. Um, but they, you know, it's interesting because today I think we think of the Republican Party as very limited government. And at that time, it wasn't so clearly that... In fact, after the Civil War is a time period where both side, both parties um, don't really think the government should be doing much at all. In fact, they kind of practice something which people call laissez-faire politics or laissez-faire government, where the government, for the most part, stays out of it. Um, and I would say both parties are pretty supportive of big, big business. This is, of course, the time period when... In the late <clears throat> in the late nineteenth century, when um, big businesses are growing extraordinarily, this is when we were talking about monopolies, right? Like, you've got all their pro business, and so they kind of let them do their own thing. And it's not really till our man Teddy Teddy Roosevelt where things start to switch a little bit. That and William Jennings Bryan, who's another famous politician with the People's Party, um, in uh, out in the Midwest, and that's when I think you see the first shift from. A little bit more towards, um, at least for the Democrats, towards what we think of today, which is the Democrats being a larger government um, and the Republicans being more limited government. And that happens at the turn of the century, basically, the turn of the 20th century, I should say. So. Yeah. And we've got the, the great realignment election of, of 1912, where we have some real shifts with our, our bull moose party and uh, and the Democratic Party and the Republican Party sort of shifting views on a lot of different uh, different issues. But um, 
it's that that period between the turn of the century and the first world war where we see these parties begin to take shape and then they're crystallized by folks like uh you know the the republican um presidents like your your hoovers and your coolidges as opposed to the the democratic fdr and that's when we see sort of these modern ideas uh really coming out through the biggest transformation in that they they truly are on the wrong side of they're on the wrong moral side they're on the wrong side of history in the civil war in that they believe in slavery and they defend it completely um and interestingly today you see the you know you see definitely people of color more supportive of the democratic party so the question is always like well how does that happen and where when does that happen right and it is a long slow walk between 1860 until really not until almost the 1970s where that happens and there's a couple reasons why that that does occur one is is that um again you know the turn of the century that's when the government starts looking or democrats start saying okay we'll embrace some larger government initiatives of course with fdr that's also you know the expansion of the federal government but it's Truman who does the first kind of major shift with civil rights in which he um, desegregates the military. Um, and there's still this really staunch Democratic portion, I'm sorry, Southern Democratic portion called the Dixiecrats, who are really anti-integration and um, they're like really anti-progress on civil rights and stuff like that. And they make up a huge portion of the Democratic Party really all the way until the late 60s um, when Lyndon Johnson helps pass some of the important legislation, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1968, and of course the Voting Rights Act, where you start to see some of that flip and the Southern, like the South in America starts to become more Republican, specifically under the Nixon administration um, when he makes a, a big push to um, what he calls the Southern strategy to attract Southern voters to hit to the Republicans. But if it's all right, I'd like to take us a little bit back in time, just because uh, this dynamic of big government versus small government, laissez-faire economics versus more active responsibility, um, the the sort of American political party system is derived from from the British one. I, I think it's worth saying the, the modern concept of party is really a British one, even though we can talk about things and we may talk about this a little bit later in the ancient world or, um, you know, in, in other areas being uh, party driven. I think that the American conception of it is pretty close to the British one, which formed coming out of the British Civil War and, and the Glorious Revolution, where they replaced a leader that they thought was too dictatorial and friendly to Catholics with um, William and Mary, who were uh, siblings or cousins of the, the king who were over in the Netherlands. And they had this you know, supposedly bloodless revolution, which in reality did have some blood spilled and some fighting, but coming out of it, we had these two factions of the, the Whig party, which of course the Americans would later change that name and the Tory party, which is the antecedents of the modern uh, conservative party. And so uh, these two parties really get 
divided on a lot of the same issues that you see in America. Of course, they are slightly different in that they're talking about what kind of monarchy they want, right? With the conservative uh, Tories pushing for more of an absolute monarchy kind of structure and the, the Whigs pushing for more of a constitutional structure. But um, this idea of you have a party behind you that organizes to support elections and uh, there are certain candidates who come forth as the leaders of that party and you have to curry favor with them. All those kind of dynamics are derived from a British system that the Americans of the colonies would have been very familiar with. Um, and, you know, if we talk about the, uh, the Democrats going through a lot of evolutions, these are the same political parties in Britain in the 1600s that there are in modern day. So uh, not in every case, but a lot of them have just evolved over time so that we have modern incarnations of the same parties. So parties in, in some ways um, can live longer than even governmental forms can. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, it's interesting because I think actually the transformations are what make government work. Like, in other words, if you could just, if you just, and I think that's maybe what the problem is somewhat with our government right now is that the Democrats have become this unified block. I mean, obviously there's differences within the, within the party, but they are a unified voting block and the Republicans similarly have become a unified voting block. Again, there's differences within the party and there's more extremes on both sides, but in terms of voting, they really don't seem to go across the aisle at all. Whereas for a long time in American history, really between the Civil War and like arguably the early 90s, you would see this kind of cross the aisle, um, even though we still had only two parties, like, you know, strong two parties, you would see this kind of um, vote exchanges and cross the aisle discussions because there were because there was the progressive party that was adopted basically by the republicans under teddy roosevelt and then taft and and then also the the people's party that was adopted by the democrats that you could see that they had to kind of pander to interests that that they weren't necessarily always comfortable with um and you know Right. And, and that's something that, you know, if we're comparing Britain and America, and I don't want to get too much into the parliamentary system, but last week we talked about the Electoral College and the game theory of that, that it leads to favoring two parties, right, that can actually manage to uh, gain 270 electoral votes. Um, the Democrats right now, arguably, you know, and I wouldn't be the first one to argue it, have sort of two sub parties within the party right now. One that's the more sort of traditional democratic approach of, uh, you know, moderate Democrats represented by someone like Joe Biden. And then there's the more progressive wing of it represented by someone more like a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. Um, but there's so much pressure within the political system for those parties to remain together and united as a Democratic Party because if you split, there's no chance for uh, for defeating defeating a Republican Party that may, you know, may well have its own divisions. Uh, we haven't seen them as much, um, but uh, the game theory makes it not a viable option to split. Whereas in Britain, uh, you can have parties that really only differ from another party on one issue, but run as a separate party because the parliamentary system allows that. Um, you know, the Scottish National Party uh, runs basically just on the issue of making Scotland and Scotland and Scotland's interests represented separately. Um, and uh, they're still able to win seats in Scotland. And because it's a parliamentary system where you can have lots of different parties represented, um, 
they win states or the equivalent of states. They win voting districts um, so that uh, you can have these minor parties represented. Of course, they can't develop a majority in the parliament on their own, so they have to make deals with other parties to form a coalition to have a majority. But that's that kind of cross-aisle dealing that you're talking about, where uh, once the people are there, they have to make deals to be able to form some sort of a, a coalition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if they knew that they were, despite the fact that they said they didn't want political parties by creating the electoral system, this thing that we said was kind of like a hot, you know, a thrown together last minute deal last week. They were creating a system that really would lend itself only to two parties or if that was another or if that was in some reaction to, I don't know, other things that they had seen. Right? Yeah, I mean, so so the Roman example is uh, sort of what happens when you let parties get totally out of control, at least in the late Roman Republic. Um, you know, what, without getting into too much of the details, you basically have these two Roman parties, one called the Populares, the party of the people, and the other being the Optimates, um, which is not what they called themselves. The Optimates means the best. Um, it's what uh, the other parties sort of sneeringly referred to them as. Um, but you have these two parties that are deeply, deeply distrustful of each other, the Optimates representing primarily the Romans who are Roman citizens, who are wealthy, propertyed men, um, the Populares representing the people who uh, were still propertyed men, but not as propertyed. Um, and they often adopted the cause of the allies of the Roman uh, Republic, so that you know there were all these different Italian peoples who were not Roman who wanted a piece of the Roman political structure, and so they were often the ones who represented that. And it's interestingly that party, um, who's uh, the one that someone like Julius Caesar would uh, affiliate with. He was a very much a populare because he uh, basically was able to become a dictator on the strength of his popularity with the people. But the reason why I say this is the worst case scenario is that. In the Roman system, military parties, military armies, were not loyal to the state. They were loyal to the general. Um, so if that general had a political interest, they could take the army that they were in control of and use it to enforce their political interests. Now, there wasn't supposed to be, uh, it wasn't supposed to be allowed that any men-at-arms were allowed into the Roman city. There was this mythical border called the Pomerium that you were not supposed to bring any troops within. Uh, but what that allowed for was two things. One, once someone broke the taboo of bring, um, bringing a military into Rome, everyone started doing it. That guy was a guy named uh, Cornelius Lucius, or Lucius Cornelius Sulla, the guy who broke that, that rule. But after he does it, everyone else does it. Um, and so if you want to get things done, you just march your very loyal army into Rome. But the other piece was when they're not there, they basically had street gangs unofficially affiliated with each of the party who would just go around like intimidating people into voting particular ways. Um, and they would have full on like battles in the streets. These are gladiators fighting on behalf of the different political parties in the streets, um, trying to intimidate people into voting one way or the other. Um, and when that didn't work, the earlier strategy was uh, 
we throw as many cool parties as possible to get you to like us more and then you'll vote for us. So sort of the two extremes of like, you know, the the carrot and the stick of either we're going to get you to vote for us by uh, spending tons of money for parties for you to enjoy, or the, the stick of we're going to march an army in here and intimidate you into it. So I think there was some real fear that partisan politics could collapse a perfectly reasonable democracy. Um, and they only had to look to Rome for that. And all the founding fathers would have been familiar with that kind of a story. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not too far off, actually, from what was happening in the 18, late 1830s, 40s and 50s with some of the political divisions. Um, and, you know, we, lest we forget, we've had two um, uh, congressmen who have been beaten, practically beaten to death by opponents of the opposing party um, <clears throat> in their offices or on the Senate floor because of political differences, not to mention the number of citizens that have been, you know, intimidated at the polls and and or um you know <clears throat> turned away at the polls or as one one thing i read actually recently that they suggested that maybe even edgar Allan poe um was was uh accidentally killed at the polls because uh they tried to get him to vote for somebody else i mean there's been all sorts of things in american politics where we've also experienced the same thing it's not too far off though we haven't seen that kind of intimidation and quite similar. Are political parties just a negative, right? I mean, we've talked a fair amount about some of the gridlock that they can produce if you don't have that cross-party conversation. Uh, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, the negatives of how our, our election system creates these two parties. Is there anything that parties do that's that's good. Is there anything good that we can say about them? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the reason we have them because they do more good than harm. I mean, you can imagine a system where there were no political parties, but yet we were still representative democracy. And the idea that citizens would be involved in some capacity, like truly involved, but for a party platform. In other words, a group of individuals telling us what they stand for um, or, you know, party communication or all of those things is hard to imagine. Um, it, it's hard to imagine getting any sort of governance done unless you organize groups of people into interests, right? If every, mm -hmm. if every congressperson was completely out on their own, then I think you really would have something similar to what happened in Rome where you had essentially the party of the po of the personality, right? Yeah. Um, and, and to me, political parties help, or political platforms, right? They help to kind of take away the cult of the personality to the extent that they can. That doesn't always happen. Um, but, you know, there's a reason why we don't remember a lot of American presidents. They're just, they just were a party. They just represented the party. They weren't yeah. really that, you know, notable. It also helps to keep representatives accountable, right? If uh, if you're voting for a candidate of a particular party, you want to have some level of certainty that they're going to follow through on the things that they say they're going to follow through on. And the party structure with the whips who are in charge of making sure all the votes are there for various different uh, bills, you know, it makes it so that there's some sort of stakes for the representatives if they decide to go rogue and not do uh, what would be expected of them. Um, at least to some extent. It also cuts the other way that if a representative wants to 
cross the aisle and make a controversial statement that might be for the greater good, then the party structure might work against it. But there is something positive to the idea of there being maybe consequences isn't the right word, but but there being uh, responsibility. You have to take responsibility for the decisions that you make. Uh, that brings this week of uh, Historically Speaking to a close. So thanks for listening.